Right. Well, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Good, good to see you all tonight. How was dinner tonight? Was it good? You appreciate Todd back there and the team? They do a great job, huh? Amen. If you got your Bibles, join me in turning to Mark 10. Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 32 tonight. We've been in this series called The Basics. We're just covering those those primary practices that we are called to as believers, some, some essential habits, okay, that we need to be engaging in. If we're serious about, about growth, we want to look and sound and be like Jesus Christ. Well, these are, these are the fundamentals, and we've talked about a few things. In, in week one, we talked about the importance of having a daily, consistent, quiet time with the Lord. How do I spend time with Christ? Talked about some essential uh, concepts to get our head around there. And then we talked about how do I experience the Bible? How do I get the most out of my time in God's Word? And I gave you some practical tips on how to study the Word of God. We talked about how to pray effectively. And we did just that. We practiced that together, uh, praying with one another. And then uh, last week, we looked at uh, a practical way to share our faith. And I I talked uh, uh, through Romans Road, a very um, tried and true, time-tested way to share the gospel uh, with with other people who need to know Jesus Christ. Well, tonight, we're going to look at an essential habit that uh, we really cannot afford to avoid. If we want to be like Jesus, we've got to get this one for sure. And so we're going to look at this in Mark 10 tonight. There was a speaker of the the, uh, United States House of Representatives named Sam Rayburn. Back in the 1940s, Sam Rayburn was speaker longer than any other man in history, longer than any other speaker in American history. And uh, you know, there's a movie coming out called Oppenheimer about the creation of the atomic bomb. It was Sam Rayburn who procured $1.6 billion to secretly fund the Manhattan Project. So this was an important man. This was a high-profile, very, very visible, important figure in political life in the 1940s. Uh, A man of some greatness, people would say. But there's a story about Sam Rayburn that really reveals the kind of man he was personally. Sam Rayburn had a neighbor. And this neighbor had a teenage daughter. And one night, tragically and suddenly, this teenage daughter lost her life. And the family was, was grief-stricken. They were devastated. And the next morning, there was a knock on their door. They opened it, and there was Speaker Rayburn standing on their porch. And he had a look of compassion on his face, and he said, I just, I just came by to see what I could do to help. And the man said, well, Mr. Speaker, I, I don't think there's anything you can do. We're just, we're just making the arrangements now. And he said, well, all the same. He said, uh, there must be something that I could do to be a blessing to you. Have you had breakfast yet? Have you had your coffee yet? And the man admitted that they had not taken time to have breakfast that morning. And Speaker Rayburn said, well, could I at least come in and make you coffee and just sit a while? And so they said, of course. And they invited the speaker in. He said, oh, would you mind if I use your telephone quickly? And he said, of course. And he showed him to a room off to the side next to the parlor there. Speaker went in, closed the door, used the phone. And as the man and his wife sat there in the parlor, they could overhear the conversation that the speaker was having on the phone. And they heard him say, yes, Mr. President, I'm very sorry about breakfast this morning. A friend of mine is in trouble and, uh, well, I'm going to have to miss our appointment today. And that really speaks to what we're talking about 
tonight. In our world, greatness is often connected to who you know, to how big your platform is, to how big your bottom line is. And there's any number of criteria that the world connects with greatness. But in the text that we're going to look at here today, Jesus, well, he's going to shatter all of that. And we're going to look at a passage where we're going to see Jesus make a seismic shift in the paradigm of greatness with the 12 disciples concerning what leadership is, what greatness is. Because in your notes, the great overarching thought here in in our study tonight is that serving is the new paradigm of greatness. And that is a big lesson. When, When Jesus presents this concept, it's something that the world has never experienced before. At that point, it will be a a, a positively tectonic shift in terms of leadership. When we think of leadership, what do we think of? What has the world taught us about leadership? And I would say, I would submit to you that everything that we instinctively know about leadership is wrong. Everything that we know about greatness is wrong. It's not simply about being in authority. It's not simply about being visible. Uh, What the world calls greatness often is just fame. It's just fame. And Jesus is concerned with greatness, but he is not impressed with fame. He says, I am impressed with greatness. And greatness and fame are not the same thing. And so that's what we're going to talk about, this new paradigm of what it means to be great in the sight of God. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment before we begin? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together, Lord. And I pray that this is a lesson that we would take to heart because you really um, have, have put a high premium on this facet of the Christian life because according to you, this is really what grants stature in your eyes. And we ask your blessing upon our time together in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to have here in the training of the 12 a highly guilt-ridden text. How many of you came to be loaded up with guilt tonight? You're ready for that. Well, this might put you in your place. Certainly puts me in my place as I studied this. But we're going to see a series of contrasts uh, between true greatness and false greatness. And we're going to start in verse 32 of Mark 10 tonight. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They being the disciples, and of course Jesus. And this has been a period in the training of these disciples called uh, the season of withdrawal, where they once had spent some time in Jerusalem, they have now withdrawn for a period of time from the city. How come? Why have they not spent time in Jerusalem? Well, there are are people there seeking the life of Christ. They They want to kill him. And he knows it's not yet time for him to die because he is sovereign. And so he has avoided Jerusalem, but now it's springtime and Passover is upon them. And so as he says in John 17, my hour has come. And so he is making his way toward Jerusalem. And he shared with these disciples, he shared before what it is that awaits him in Jerusalem. There will be spitting. There will be scorning. There will be scourging. And yes, there will be death. And so they are walking toward this city. But this walk, unlike others before, has a different feel to it. It feels a little bit like they're on a Higgins boat heading for the shores of Normandy on D-Day. And they're just waiting for that ramp to drop and be met by a hail of bullets because they've come to understand what awaits Christ in Jerusalem. And by implication, what awaits them? 
And so they're walking. And it says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. If you could picture this, there's this group of guys. They know what waits for him in, in Jerusalem. And yet he's up there. He's walking on ahead. And they're, they're just watching him go. And he's walking with, with purpose in his step. It's almost like he can't wait to get there. It's almost like David running to meet Goliath on the battlefield. He's got this, this hulking menace waiting for him out there, and he is zealous to get to the fight. And it says, and they were amazed. They are flabbergasted at the uncommon courage of Jesus. He is walking fast to what seems like an execution. And uh, we have a different account of this in John's gospel. And it's in this moment you've got Thomas. Thomas, uh, the realist. And he pipes up, in, in John's gospel, and he says, well, let us go that we may die with him. You know, Thomas just is Mr. Blunt. He's Mr. Brightside, you know. You, you would never want to show a picture of your baby to Thomas. You know, he might tell you it looks like Winston Churchill or something like that. Uh, but Jesus is knowingly heading toward trouble, certain death. It's just remarkable to these disciples as they watch the resolve uh, with which he makes his way there. It's almost like as it was prophesied in Isaiah. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, speaking in the voice of the Messiah, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And it says in, in verse 7, I have set my face like flint. Jesus is walking resolutely. And it says, and those who followed were afraid in Mark's gospel. They're afraid. This has got to be the first time in his presence that they're afraid. He's only brought calm to them. There was that time on the Sea of Galilee where they're in the storm and they cry out and Christ comes walking on water and they see him and they, they cry in terror because they think he's a ghost. But when he announces himself and he climbs in the boat, immediately, peace. And so when they are with him, there is peace. But here, they're afraid. First time. First time. And he knows this. He senses this. And so he turns and he pulls them aside. And he has a word with them. He says, fellas, let me, let me, just, let me just share something with you. Here's what's going to happen when we get to the city. Now, this is meant to be a comfort to you. He says, what's going to happen is not going to be pleasant. But it's going to be necessary. And I'm going to be there. But I'm telling you this because you need to know that I know what is going to happen, okay? And pretty soon, he's gonna share with them in this very conversation, not only that he knows that he's going to die, he's gonna share with them that he knows that they're going to die. And he knows when they're going to die. And he knows how they're going to die, and he knows what they need to be doing until they die. You say, I thought this was gonna be a comfort to them. It is. It is. You know why this is a comfort to them? Because he knows everything that's going to happen. As unpleasant as it is, you need to know, and I need to know, that our Lord is not perplexed. He is absolutely uh, aware of what is coming our way, meaning he's in total control regardless of our situation, regardless of what we encounter, regardless of what life throws at us, and we need to know that he's not taken by surprise by any of it. Some of you need to know that right now. I don't know what you're going through, but you need to know that God is not surprised by what you're encountering in your life, and he is still on the throne. He is still in charge. 
And Mark says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. He's starting out by telling them what will happen to him. He's going to describe in vivid detail the whole impending ordeal of what he's about to go through. Now, he's told them this before. But now this date with destiny is really hurtling toward them like a meteor. It's getting real. And so he's going to lay this out step by step because this really lays the foundation for the lesson that he wants them to learn. And I think that it's laying the lesson for what he wants us to learn as well. And the first lesson in your notes, number one, that we need to understand is that true greatness is patterned after Christ's sacrifice. True greatness is patterned after his sacrifice. And so he's going to walk them through this line by line. In verse 33, he says, see, we are going to Jerusalem, right over there, right over that hill. That's where we're going. And the Son of Man, he says, that's his favorite title for himself. Jesus was always referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, he's the Son of God. You ever wonder why he calls himself the Son of Man? Because the Son of Man uh, speaks of the incarnation. It's God coming down, taking on flesh. And not only that, but the Son of Man is a messianic term. You see it in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. We studied uh, Daniel 7 in our prophecy study on Wednesday nights right here, not that long ago. And we saw Daniel with a vision saying, and I saw one like the Son of Man descending from heaven, presented before the Ancient of Days, and a kingdom was given to him, and all things were put under his feet. So there's no doubt when Daniel's talking about that Son of Man, he's referring to the Messiah. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I am that guy. I am that Messiah. And in the end, you know from the prophets, Messiah wins. All the other kingdoms of the earth are going to crumble. From, from Babylon to Rome, they're going down, and even a future kingdom of the Antichrist, it's going to crumble too. But my kingdom will follow all of those, and it will be an everlasting kingdom. So we know that the Son of Man wins in the end, and it is that knowledge that will allow Christ to walk resolutely toward Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to face death. Because despite death, the Messiah wins. And he knows that. And he wants them to know that. And so here's the path for the Son of Man. He said the Son of Man in Jerusalem will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be delivered over. And when he says delivered over, that means he's going to be betrayed. And he's alluded to this before. He, he, he straight up told them. He says, one of you will betray me. He said, one of you is a devil. Is a devil, right? We know who that is. That's Judas. He's going to turn me over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn the Son of Man to death. So you got the Jews, the Jewish elites. That's not just any random Jewish person. Those are the elite. When he talks about the Jews, that means the, the, the religious powers that be. You got the Sanhedrin made up of mostly Sadducees. You got some Pharisees in there. They're going to receive the Son of Man by betrayal at the hand of one of his own, and then they are going to deliver him over, it says, to the Gentiles. Okay? But first, they will condemn him to death, it says. They will condemn him to death. That means that there's going to be a trial, and they're going to convict him He's going to be found guilty of high crime, and he's telling the disciples, here's how that trial's going to end. It hadn't even started yet, but he's telling them how it's going to go. And then he's going to be delivered by the Jews to the Gentiles. 
the Gentiles. So that's the second betrayal. First Judas, now his own brethren, the Jewish people, Sanhedrin, they're going to hand him over to Rome. To Rome. The Jews of Jerusalem, they are, they are scheming, they are hateful. The Romans are ruthless and brutal and sadistic. And then in verse 34, he says, and they, who's that? That's the Romans, will mock him. Is that going to happen? Yes. They will spit on him. Will that happen? Yes. And flog him. You see, this is all prophetic. All of it. He's being very specific here. He knows What's going to take place? And finally, he says, and kill him. They're going to put him to death by the cross. Stephen later would say he was crucified by wicked men over whom he would pray, Father, forgive these soldiers. They don't know what they're doing, right? The Romans. And Jesus sees it all before it happens. Does Christ know when he will die? Yes. Does he know when you will die? Yes. Does he know how you will die? He does. Does he know what you ought to be doing until you die? Indeed, he does. And so he knows all of that in as much as he knows everything about his own death in this passage. And then he, he also sees this about himself. It goes on, it says, and after three days, he will rise. He will rise. So here's the pattern. I just read, I just read the pattern. This is the sequence. You got suffering. You got condemnation. You got the cross, death. You got resurrection right there. What's next? Glory. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going to be glorified. All right? That is God's paradigm for greatness. Now, I want you to notice in that sequence, on the front end, there's a whole lot of unpleasantness before you get to the glory. You don't go straight to glory. You go through lowering of oneself first there's suffering there's hardship we're not used to that when we think of greatness uh, but there's even something about this glory that the disciples don't get there's a parallel passage to this in Luke 18 the way that Luke describes this he says he reads it basically the same things as we've just read but then it, it tells you in Luke 18 34 something that Matthew and Mark don't about the disciples response in, in Luke it says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Is that redundant? He says basically three ways. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They understood none of it. It was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp it. I mean, these guys are in the dark. What didn't they understand? They, did, they understood the concept of mocking. They understood flogging. They understood killing. Rising from the dead, that's a head scratcher. Now, Jesus had raised people from the dead, but they had no frame of reference for uh, someone resurrecting himself. You know, he's saying, I'm a divine person. My death is not a normal death, guys. Uh, they're not taking my life from me. I'm laying it down for other people. And I will be condemned for something that I did not do. And so I am going to die for a crime that others did. And then I will rise from the dead. You'd be confused too. Don't judge them too harshly. Because if you were them, you'd, you'd be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. You wouldn't get it. Uh, you might be thinking, if you're them, if you're going to rise from the dead, why die in the first place? 
What are you doing, Lord? You got all this power. I mean, what are you letting them mock you for? Why they got to scourge you? Just, just smoke them. Just wipe them out. What do you smite them? You know, you ever pray that kind of prayer about somebody who's done you wrong? Lord, just smite them. Just annihilate God. Come on, bring it. And these disciples have this worldly understanding of authority. They recognize that Christ has authority, but they hear these events that he's describing that are about to transpire, and there's no, there's no whiff of authority in that. You're going to be abused. You're going to be accused. You're going to be convicted, and you're innocent, and you're going to let them humiliate you and kill you all, all just so you can rise from the dead? Like, why even go through all of that? Why don't you just go in and kick butt and take names? We don't understand. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to them. For him to go through all of this explanation of what's going to happen and then say, I'm going to win in the end, that'd be like the coach of the Panthers last season, right before the end of the season, saying, now I know this season looks like a dumpster fire. I know it's bad. I know it's going to look like we're going to go down in flames, okay? But I'm telling you, we're really going to win. We're going to win the Super Bowl, and we're going to hoist an everlasting Super Bowl trophy over our head. A trophy without end, amen, all right? That's, you, if people said, if he said that at a press conference, people would be like, coach, you are smoking beer. What is the deal? That is not going to happen, and you know it. And so they're listening to Jesus say this. They don't get it. And not everybody gets the gospel right away. I mean, if you were raised in a paradigm of you got to earn God's favor through good deeds, you don't know the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand. But someday you're, you might get your head around it. God's going to draw you, convict you, enlighten you. And you're going to understand Christ died for you, that he rose for you, and that it had to happen that way in order to satisfy the righteous requirement of God because of sin. And that by faith you receive what he did, what he accomplished on the cross. And when you understand that, then you're born again. These guys don't get it. And I would say that one of the greatest proofs of Christianity is that his early followers did not understand what he was doing. That is the validation of Christianity, that he went against the norm, that he did not do what was expected. They did not understand it, that, that, that he was dying for them, you see. And so if there was any doubt that the disciples had no clue as to what in the world he was talking about and why he was going to do it this way. Look at the boneheaded question that comes next. Look at, look at what happens in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, who is Zebedee? Zebedee? Zebedee is a man. He's a mortal human man. James and John are his boys. They are the sons of this man. Now, there's an irony here. Because the fact that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God is one of the most amazing truths to get your head around. That God's Son became the Son of Man that the sons of men might be the sons of God. All of us were children of the devil, sons of man, sons of Adam, the fallen one. And because of Christ, who became a son of man, we put our faith in him. Now we are born of God. We experience the new birth. That's an amazing thing. But now there is an expectation on we who are now the children of God. What are we to do? We are to do what the son of God as the son of man did, which is to humble ourselves and lay down our life 
for another. And that is the lesson of this passage. And only a Christian can really know that. And only knowing that can really describe a Christian. And so, as of yet, these disciples don't get that. But the sons of Zebedee come with an odd request. They come with a ridiculous question. Have you ever asked a ridiculous question? You're looking at your spouse knowingly, like, shut up, shut up, shut up. You know? When I was in college, I had a roommate. He was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And uh, I remember, I remember the, one of the dumbest questions I ever heard. Uh, we, we were thinking about going to the movies, and I asked, him if he, I asked him if he wanted to go to the midnight showing. And he said, what time is it? <laughs> I said, it's at midnight. And he said, oh, that's too late. Like, he didn't even register, you know? This is the same guy that... He, he bought a day planner. This is when those were really popular back in the 90s. They're kind of making a comeback. But in the front, there's that front page with all of your important information, your name, your address, your emergency contact, your insurance, and all this stuff. It's right there. He's trying to think of important numbers to put in there. And he goes, hey, dude, what's the number for 911? <laughs> I just looked at him, and he's like, oh, right, right, <laughs> you know. These guys ask a, a dumb question. They ask a dumb question. It says, they came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It actually doesn't sound like much of a question in this passage right here. That's pretty brazen, isn't it? Jesus, we want you to do what we want you to do. But, but here's the thing. You know what? They're not actually brave enough to ask this by themselves. Because you know who they bring along with them? On this trip, according to Matthew 20, you got to look at another account of this same uh, version here. They brought somebody with them to hit up Jesus with a special request. You know who they brought? They brought mom. They brought the mama. She came along. Now, did she, was she invited or did she just come along? I don't know. Can you picture your own mother going up to Jesus going, uh, excuse me, excuse, excuse me, excuse me. Listen, I... I need to talk to you about my sons, my little boys, my Jimmy and Johnny. Uh, I, really, I really would like to see them sitting at your right and left hand in the kingdom. Can you imagine your mother going up to... Some of you are mothers, and you would have done this. Like, I, you know, we want the best for our kids, right? Uh, now, we know, we actually know the name of James and John's mom. It's Salome. Salome, some say Salome, Salome. Uh, you know who she is, according to the scholars? Many believe that Salome is actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, the reason that people think this is because when the New Testament gives the list of the women that would follow, the women of Galilee that would follow Christ, you've got a list, and you've got Mary Magdalene, and you've got Mary, mother of James the Less, and you go on down the list, and then you, you see in almost every list, Salome, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, yada, yada. But in one of these narratives, it gives a list of these women, and where you would normally see Salome, wife of Zebedee, mother of James and John, it, it omits that, and it says Mary's sister. And we, everybody would know who Mary is, unless it says Mary, mother of James, or Mary Magdalene. If it just says Mary, that, there's only one Mary that that refers to. So if it's Mary's sister, then potentially this, this could be Jesus' Aunt Salome. So you got Aunt Salome, you got Cousin James and Cousin John. Just the good old boys, you know. 
driving the general Galilee, I guess. But uh, nepotism is what is being requested here. That pops up in history, doesn't it? Uh, you got this thing called nepotism. You know what nepoti- the word nepotism comes from the Latin word uh, nepos, which means nephew. Did you know that? Nepotism. Somebody's nephew gets a job, not because he's qualified, but because their uncle is the one in authority. And so that's how that works. Did you know that this is why? Have you ever wondered why priests are to remain celibate? Because at some point in church history, priests, it was determined that, that priests who carried a lot of authority, a lot of authority in the church, that if they were to marry, they might just start popping out little bishops. And they'd have a dynasty, like a clergy dynasty. And power would just transfer from one generation of priests and there'd be a little fiefdom of priests. And so it was, it was, there was an edict that said priests are no longer to marry and they solved that problem. And now there's no corruption in the church. <laughs> and that's the story of history, nepotism. But here, second lesson I want us to learn tonight in your notes is that false greatness is achieved by shortcuts and connections. See, uh, there's, there's a contrast here. Jesus is like, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die for you. And in the very next breath, you see two of his own followers coming with Aunt Salome saying, you know, you know we, we want to squeeze you for some position in the kingdom because, I mean, we're family, you know, we're family. It's an old story. You know, it's not just the Godfather where you see this stuff. Uh, incidentally, there's another Salome in the Bible. You see it in the story, uh, King Herod has a dancer that's entertaining him. And he's so pleased by, and her name is Salome, and he's so pleased, and she happens to be his uh, stepdaughter, ew, right? And so he's so pleased by her dance that he offers her anything, even up to half his kingdom. And she, of course, has this request that's rather morbid about the head of John the Baptist, but, but he's willing to give her anything. Well, this Salome is not making that kind of a request, but, and Jesus is not like Herod. He is not moved by emotional forces. How does he respond to this? They come up, they say, I want you to do whatever I ask. And he says to them in verse 36, what do you want me, what uh, what does he say? What do you want me to do for you? He's like, cut to the chase here. Don't dance around. Don't beat around the bush. Tell me what you want. Let's have some terms. Verse 37, they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. You see what their, their immediate desire, they want to go straight for the glory. See, shortcut. They want to bypass all the steps. Jesus laid it out. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to die. All of that comes before resurrection and glory. They want to skip all that. They want to go right to the glory. We just want to make sure we've reserved a spot. We want to get a good seat in the kingdom. And that's, that's human nature. That's not just millennials. That's all of us. Okay. And Jesus said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. He's like, I don't hand out positions. I'm not a power broker. Uh, There's a cost involved for this privilege. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. You don't know what you're asking for. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What is the cup that Christ is going to drink? It's the cup of judgment. It's a cup of judgment. He's going to be seen as a guilty man. 
He's going to be accused unjustly. He's going to be convicted erroneously. He will not open his mouth to defend himself. How hard is that? Speaking as a male, I can tell you that is hard. To, def- to, to not speak up and defend yourself when you know in your heart you're right. Some of you husbands are like, yeah, you know. And he just takes it. He just takes it. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is the baptism with which he is to be baptized? That means you gotta die. That's God's paradise. You have to die. So number three, in your notes, true greatness in the eyes of God involves dying. There's a dying. Are you willing to be guilty and to die? Are you willing to do that? Lower yourself even to the point of death. And they said to him, verse 39, we are able. Really? They, they had no idea. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. They make this request of Jesus. It's almost like, it's like they see uh, a Medal of Honor winner. You guys seen Hacksaw Ridge or you heard of it? You know the story, Hacksaw Ridge? Desmond Doss. He's from up, up north in Lynchburg, Virginia is where he was from. Guy, World War II, conscientious objector, went to World War II, unarmed, would not carry a gun, you know. It's like, it's like they saw Desmond Doss with his Medal of Honor, and they go up to him, and they see that medal, that shiny little thing, and they, they like it, and they go, man, that is nice, you know, I think about getting one, myself one of them. You know, where'd you get that? Where, 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 where can I get that? Where'd you get yours? And he tells them, you know, he might say, well, I went to Okinawa, 1945, and I served in the 307 as, a, as an unarmed medic, and uh, our forces were fighting on top of this, you know, 400-foot ridge, this cliff that we ascended by climbing cargo nets. We got up there. Several members of our regiment were cut to ribbons by mortar fire and machine gun fire. We were outmanned. We were outgunned. We were ordered to retreat, but 75 of our guys were too hurt, and so they were wounded, and I didn't want to leave them behind. And and so without any weapons, I, I went back onto the field of battle, and I carried them unarmed. I carried them, each and every one. I lowered them down the cliff by hand, and I had sniper fire uh, on me the whole time. One of them shattered my arm. I refused treatment until others who were hurt worse than me could get treatment. And that's, that's how I got this medal. And, and they're like, okay, great. Yeah. So like Amazon or? <laughs> they don't know what they're asking. Many medals of honor are given uh, not to soldiers but to widows because of the high price. There's a price for that honor. You gotta be willing to die. Jesus is saying, you gotta be willing to die. I don't just give these out. This, this isn't for free. And this is an enormous shift in the concept of, of position, in the concept of authority, of leadership, of greatness. You don't get it because your dad or your uncle has a connection. And it goes on, it says, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. You will drink this. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. He prophesies to these guys what will become of them. Both of these guys are going to die for Christ. James, in fact, will be the first martyr of the, of the 12. You're going, to have, you're going to have Stephen, okay? 
But of the 12, James would be the first to die by the sword. Uh, John, John would be the last. And we don't actually know how John died. John was the last surviving apostle. The last book of your Bible was written by John. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. I have stood in the cave where he wrote Revelation. Uh, but prior to that, Fox's book of martyrs records that John, they attempted to boil him in oil and he survived. And uh, as an old man, he lived out his days on Patmos. And Jesus is saying to both of these guys, you will get the glory. You will get the glory, but you're going to drink from this cup first. You're going to go through the baptism of death first. I know how long you're going to live. I know how you're going to die. I know when you're going to die. And I know what you must do until you die. And that is true for every single person in this room. And he says in verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They got upset. Now that word indignant, we see it used of Christ in another passage. He's, he's indignant. What made him indignant? Uh, they brought... Some, somebody brought some children to him and the disciples uh, kind of shooed them away. The disciples said, get these kids out of here. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. And he got mad at them. He didn't want them to be devalued, these children. He said, no, no, let the little ones come to me. And he was indignant. He was angry at the disciples for how they devalued these kids. Why are these disciples indignant right here? It's, it's not because they find James and John's request cringeworthy or offensive to Christ, they're indignant because somebody thinks they're greater than them. They don't like that. That's what makes them mad. One scholar said, you could tell much about a man by what makes him angry. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't like people condescended upon. The disciples don't like people thinking that they're greater than them. And so this lesson number four in your notes is that false greatness fosters resentment and craves power. The rest of these guys are no better than James and John in this moment. They all want the same thing. They all would love the shortcut. And so Christ deals with them. In verse 42, Jesus calls to them and said to them, you know, he's like, sit down, take a knee. You ever feel like God's telling you to take a knee? I got to tell you something, boy, girl. All right, time for a teachable moment. Here you go. Let's go back to Old Testament basics now. I want to show you some stuff. This is what a leader is. And he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, you guys are acting like the pagan Romans. You hate those guys. Why are you acting like the ones that you hate? Don't, the people you can't stand the most, that's who you're trying to become. You're so naive, you think that that's greatness, and it's not. And he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. He said, you don't pursue that, that counterfeit greatness, that fraudulent, fake greatness. It's not greatness. Because in your notes, number five, true greatness serves God, how? By serving God. True greatness serves God by serving people. Um, in your margin, write down, get used to different. Get used to different. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. New paradigm. Servant. 
You know what the, the word for servant is? Diakonos. Diakonos. We get our word deacon from that. We have deacons in this church. You know what deacons are, biblically? They're servants. It's an office, okay? There are specific qualifications to that office, but ultimately, a deacon is a servant. They are in the church to serve in very specific ways. Diakonos. Now, I grew up Baptist. Deacons have not always fit that description, in every church that I've ever been in, we've had some deacon problems. And the problem always came back to their mindset and perspective on what, what it meant to be a deacon. And they thought it had to do with authority. They thought it had to do with position. They thought it had to do with leadership and being able to tell people what to do, tell the pastor what to do, tell the church folks what to do. That's what being on the deacon board was. That's not what the Bible says about being a deacon. A diakonos is a servant. So he says you're a servant, Servant of who? Well, ultimately, you're servant of God. But though you are a servant of God, your, your actions and your service are directly related not to God, but directly to man. Which man? All of them. All of them. Look here, verse 44. And whoever would be first among you, uh, whoever would be first among you must be, and the word next that we see is not diakonos, it's doulos which is not servant, but slave. Slave. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave of all. You are a servant of one, capital O, and you are the slave of everybody. And that is how you honor the Lord, is you serve one another. That means there's no job too low, there's no person too small, there's no hill too steep that you will not serve. And I know, because you're probably like me, that in your nature, you are looking for the quick payoff. You want to just read the bestseller, you just want to listen to that hot podcast, you want to get the basic stuff, and you want to climb to the top as quickly as you can. Many, many attempt it that way, uh, but we don't necessarily look to the right example. Who are the ones that we're used to looking to? The self-made people in this world. Who's the new example of leadership according to Christ? And how does he model that? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And there's so many examples from the life and ministry of Christ that I could point to. So many. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know a lot of pastors Almost every pastor I know listens to podcasts. I listen to podcasts. You know what the most popular podcasts among pastors of my generation are? Leadership podcasts. You know how many leadership podcasts there are? Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. How many servanthood podcasts are there? I've never, I've never heard one. I've never heard one. If there is one, it's hard to find. Maybe, maybe somebody should start one here. A servanthood podcast. It probably wouldn't catch on, unfortunately. But that would be God's, God would love that idea, don't you think? And this is why Jesus, one week later, after giving this standard, one week later, what's he going to do? He's going to stand in a room with these guys, the last night he's ever going to spend with them, the last evening that they spend together, and he's going to stand after they will be arguing, because they won't learn the lesson permanently here. They're going to be arguing in that room. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And in the middle of that, Jesus is going to stand up. Who is the greatest? 
and he's going to gird himself with a towel, and he's going to get a basin of water and a pitcher, and he's going to kneel down, and he's going to wash the grimy grit off of each of those guys' feet. He's going to become a servant without saying a word. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 Five through eight, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though while he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He modeled servanthood so that you and I would know what it means to be selfless and to serve one another. Your parting thought in your notes is really just for you to write in there whatever you whatever you think of, whatever comes to mind. If Jesus can serve people by dying for them, then I can serve by. And only you know the answer to that. What is that? How can you serve? How do you die to self? How do you put others first. That's what love is. Love defined is living for another's good. How do you lower yourself and serve God by serving others? If you need inspiration, there are ministries right here at the Lamb's Chapel that you can be involved in. You know, church is not just a place to to sit and soak up some truth coming off the platform to gather with others and worship. It's a place to, to sharpen your serve. Because if you're not serving, you're not growing. And I've often believed in, in church that if you don't serve, you don't stick. Eventually, you'll fade away. You stay in the body when you serve. And he's gifted each and every one of you. And, and down the road, I, we're going to do this. We're going to do a, a Wednesday night series on spiritual gifts. And do you know what spiritual gifts are for? They're for service in the body. They're for edification of the body. They have nothing to do with talent. They have nothing to do with the external world, really. They're for the body of Christ. And there's a whole litany of spiritual gifts, and they're exciting, and I can't wait to talk about them. We don't have time tonight. But there's certainly opportunities. In fact, there's a card in the back of the seat in front of you that you could take out, and, and, and if... God is laying something on your heart tonight. You can look at that card, and you could write in here where it says, I decided to, and where it says other, you could just write in serve. You could just write in the word serve. And then there are areas that you might be interested in serving, and areas in our church where we need servants, where we need volunteers. You can never have too many. And you could check the ones you're interested in, and you could just set those on that desk right out there in the Welcome Center on your way out. Make this the greatest week of your life. Would you identify, would you ask God to show you a way that you could serve somebody else this week? In the body, maybe a neighbor, like that speaker that I told you about? To serve, to be sacrificial like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then I got one last thing to share with you on your way out. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon everybody in this room. They're here tonight, God, because they want to be like you. They're here because they're hungry. You're here because you're doing a work in their life, and I, I really believe that, and I know that you're, you're going to do mighty things through the people that are here in this room, and I can't wait to see what that is, God, but I just pray that you will speak to them this week, that you'll give them your eyes, that you will 
Empower them to be your hands and feet and that they will bring glory to you by being a blessing to others because this is the way that you've shown us clearly in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.